Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Puma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds from Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. Hey, everyone. It's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. Welcome to the Psychology Podcast, where we give you insights into the mind, brain, behavior, and creativity. I'm Dr. Scott Barry Kaufman, and in each episode, I have a conversation with a guest who will stimulate your mind and give you a greater understanding of yourself, others, and the world we live in. Hopefully, we'll also provide a glimpse into human possibility. Thanks for listening, and enjoy the podcast. Today, it's great to have Tomas Chamaro Pramutsik on the podcast. Tomas is the chief talent scientist at Manpower Group, a professor of business psychology at University College London and at Columbia University, and an associate at Harvard's Entrepreneurial Finance Lab. He's the author of Why Do So Many Incompetent Men Become Leaders and How to Fix It, as well as nine other books and over 160 scientific publications. He's the co-founder of Deeper Signals and Meta Profiling and is a regular contributor to HBR, Fast Company, and Business Insider. Tomas, so great to chat with you today. Yeah, likewise. Thank you for having me, Scott. Yeah, what an um, interesting topic of a book. I didn't see that coming. You know, I, I've seen your other books, and, and then this one came out. I was like, huh, like, why that one? So maybe you could tell me the genesis of this topic. Mm, you know, I mean, I considered writing one with the title, Why Do So Many Competent Men Become Leaders? But we figured it would sell less because it's not <laughs> common. <laughs> now, jokes aside, the book originated or came out of an article, an essay I wrote for HBR in 2013 that was a reaction to Sheryl Sandberg's lean-in argument. I felt that you know people needed an alternative in the form of a psychological explanation of why so many competent women failed to reach the leadership ranks. And in my view, the issue was not that they weren't leaning in or emulating men, but that we're not very good at judging competence in people in general. And we mistake confidence for competence, um, you know, unfairly and incorrectly reward those who think very highly of themselves, even when they're not very good. And that that is to the detriment of those who have talent, but are maybe more modest, humble, etc. 
Yeah, so I'm trying to understand exactly what your um, narrative differs from the standard narrative. So most people focus on underrepresentation of women in leadership positions through reasons such as like discrimination and mm -hmm. some psychologists argue through motivation, you know, like that yeah. women are on average are not as motivated for achievement and social status and things as men. And so you don't deny some of those reasons as well, right? But first of all, you don't deny alternative explanations. Yeah. yeah so basically- There I are think multiple factors, right? Correct. There's always multiple factors, right? And I definitely- you know, don't deny the kind of a contextual, socio-political, let's say the macro factors that contribute to the glass ceiling. We all know, for example, that when countries change uh, maternity and paternity laws to make them similar, it immediately creates a big difference. You know, these are changes to regulations and laws would exist and, you know, they, they are in the hands of politicians. But then when it comes to the psychological reasons, typically people focus on either differences in ability or motivation. And even though today there are few data-driven people who would argue that there are meaningful differences in the ability to lead, still often those same people would say, oh, you know, it has to do with differences in aspirations, motivations. And actually, if you look at the science that has been published in the last 10, 15 years, throughout the industrialized world, there aren't any differences anymore. Women are as interested in being managers or leaders as men are. Oh, really? Exactly. So even though there may still exist uh, gender differences on other dimensions, like when we look at interest in like math, science versus education, psychology, etc., when it comes to leadership in particular, there does not seem to be gender differences in motivation. That's correct? Correct. And even if you take, for example, you know, the research, which I know you're familiar with on, you know, traditional gender differences in vocational interests, even if you look at that, which is based on kind of a much older historical differences in gender differences in, in motivation or vocational interests, you would find that typically men are more interested in things, maybe ideas, and women are more interested in people. Well, what does that tell you about interest in being a manager or being a leader, which is primarily about dealing with people? What a good point. So if anything, you could make the argument that women are better suited for managing uh, humans. Correct. Even when Google fired James Desmore for quoting that research, actually they failed to interpret that even his own interpretation of right. that research, which have suggested that if anything, women are more naturally inclined to be managers. Yeah. So it's an interesting twist and I think it's a good point. So I'm glad I'm having you on the podcast today. Thank you. So I want to just talk about these reasons that you offer for so many incompetent men. You put forward three in, in this TEDx talk I watched of yours. I'm wondering if we could go through all three. Is that okay? Sure. And we can talk about each one, yep. you know. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. So, well, you know, the, the main reason is a disconnect which exists between people's leadership archetypes, what most people in their fantasized views or models of what it is to be a leader entails and the attributes that are actually needed to be an effective leader. And so more, more specifically, I dive into three attributes. The first is our emphasis on confidence rather than competence. The second is our emphasis. Well, let's, talk, well, let's, let's just like, let's go through each one and then like have a discussion about it. Sure. So first, you know, people focus more on confidence than competence. 
what that means is it's a lot easier to observe, certainly if you look at how leaders are vetted or evaluated in most corporations and most organizations, there is a very, very strong focus on short-term interactions, unstructured interviews, uh, conversations, face-to-face -face meetings, etc., which mean that for people it's much easier to observe things like assertiveness, confidence, than to actually figure out whether somebody has competence. In today's world, you know, leadership is very complex. And unless you have great expertise, it's going to be very difficult for you to evaluate whether somebody has good technical skills, domain-specific expertise, and then even things like intelligence, creativity, curiosity. These things are not easily observable. But confidence is. Hmm. And especially in the Western world and primarily in America, we have habituated to this idea that when people are assertive or they seem confident, they must be good. You know, the kind of fake it till you make it idea. Oh, yeah. We, we really do have trouble distinguishing between these things. And I think like, if I remember correctly, in the Invisible Gorilla book oh, that, that Christopher Shabri and co-authored, and they talk a lot about, about how that's one of the strong biases among humans mm -hmm. is that inability to distinguish between those two. So that, that's one reason for so many incompetent men. What's the second one? The second one is that we emphasize charisma instead of focusing on humility. In fact, you know, mm. we have been paying lip service to humility for the past two or three decades, quoting books such as Jim Collins's From Good to Great, saying, oh, yeah, the best leaders are humble. But then if you look at our leadership choices, either in organizations or in politics, they very rarely reflect an interest in having leaders who are humble. More often than not, we focus on whether they seem to have, you know, the X factor, whether they're entertaining. Mm -hmm. In American presidential elections, I think the strongest predictor of who wins other than height is who would you rather have a beer with, you know? And, you know, that might be nice, but most voters would probably not going to get to have a beer with the president. Certainly not the current one, who is a teetotaler, but uh, in general, you know, it doesn't matter if you select people with those characteristics. Of course, one can be charismatic and competent, but if you focus so much on charisma and select people based purely on the impressions they make in televised debates or short interactions, you're going to inadvertently hire a lot of people who are not that competent, including some people who might have some psychopathic tendencies and some dark side traits. Yeah, yeah. There's a quote of yours. Uh, you say, there is a surplus of charismatic leaders with a fascinating dark side. I thought that was an interesting quote. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And, you know, and it's kind of, in a way, a vicious circle because we all love reading books or watching movies on those leaders because they are captivating. But let me tell you, people will be much better off if they were managed by leaders who are actually quite boring, predictable, and not that uh, psychopathic. Yeah, keep it to the television, right? Correct, exactly. So the third one, yes, tell me the third one. Yeah, and then the third one is, you know, it's more recent in a way, but it's a, quite a common phenomenon is that we're more likely to select individuals who are narcissistic, even if it's, you know, mild narcissistic tendencies, being entitled, self-obsessed, people who are their biggest fans and admirers and who seduce us with megalomaniac visions that are impossible to execute mm -hmm. than people with integrity. I think certainly if you look at 
The vast number of scandals that have been reported in the past 10 years, and if there's one big learning from the hashtag MeToo age, is that for too long, we've selected individuals to leadership roles who feel so entitled that they think they can get away with murder, literally, and they have mm. no limits, and they're not very good at self-control. And, you know, there is a general lack of integrity and morality in our choices of leaders. And when I say choices, you know, I mean both in democracies, when people vote and elect candidates, and also in organizations or corporations, when HR departments are in charge of making these choices. Yeah, so... By linking this to narcissism to males, you're citing research on the statistically significant difference on average between males and females in the trait grandiose narcissism. Is that right? Yeah, that's correct. So the Peter Harms study. And it's interesting, in that very study, a meta-analysis, you can see that there's a worrying chronological effect whereby in the last two or three decades, the gender differences and narcissism have been decreasing, mostly because women are becoming as narcissistic as men. But men still have an advantage. And more importantly, the main point I make is that narcissists over-index in leadership roles. They are at least three or four times more likely to be in leadership roles than in the, you know, in kind of employees' roles or the overpopulation. Is that not just narcissism, but would you say the whole dark triad? Yeah, you know, as you know, they're, they are often confounded, right? So, and sometimes the measures that are used in this study might not be pure measures of narcissism, right. but have some elements of Machiavellianism. Certainly, even if you look at much of the advice that the self-help industry focuses on when it comes to helping people become leaders, preaches or foments Machiavellian tactics of manipulations, right? If your way to help people become leaders is to help them show off, take credit for other people's achievements, blame others for their mistakes, brand and, you know, BS their way up and uh, develop politically political savvy. You know, it looks a lot like a House of Cards episode. And, you know, there are certainly overlapping characteristics between that and being Machiavellian. Yeah. And then the third member of the dark, some people, my listeners might not know what the dark triad consists of, but Machiavellianism, narcissism, and, and subclinical psychopathy. But, you know, there's this research trying to understand well, what is the dark core of all these dark traits? There's even more because some people have said there's even more. There's like sadism, there's spitefulness, et cetera, et cetera. So it's, there seems to be this dark core of callousness and manipulativeness. Correct. And where there are generally speaking, deficits in empathy and, you know, bigger focus or attention on advancing one's own individual self-interest, even if it comes at the expense of others, you know. And I think in a way, I like to use sometimes the kind of a, the evolutionary term of the free rider phenomenon or effect, because you could see why, you know, certainly if the system is moral enough and high functioning, it will always allow for a certain number of individuals who take more than what they give and take advantage of that system. Where things start going wrong is when the majority of people in that system, certainly those who are in charge, have these you know, parasitic effects. And that's, in a way, organizations then will self-destruct. But the problem is there's a lot of casualties and people that suffer the consequence. So we will be better off avoiding it by minimizing, you know, the dark side tendencies that people have when they are in leadership roles. What are your own narcissism levels? 
Look, you know, I always say I grew, I grew up in Argentina where, you know, we are probably the most deluded nation in the world. <laughs> so I think more than Americans. <laughs> yes, I think so. I think so. I mean, certainly because if anything, America still has the performance and the competence to back it up mostly. Right. You could argue, OK, it's not as great as it was before, but at least it's still in by most economic output measures, the world superpower. Argentina was the superpower or a superpower in 1870. It's been declining ever since, but people's egos are still intact and as high as ever. Uh, so, you know, I often describe myself as a recovering Argentine. And by that, I mean that in the last 20 years, which is the time I spent away, I've been trying to work on decreasing my confidence and narcissism and becoming less entitled, more humble, more modest. And, you know, it's painful in the beginning, but it's very useful in the end. Now, are you going to run the risk of pissing off your fellow Argentinians when they listen to this podcast as well as like you make a similar argument in your TED talk? Yeah, but you know, I think when you are really that sure that this is not about you because you're great, something similar happened with my book for a few years, I proposed to HBR to turn my article into a book. And they said, look, we can't publish this because 70% of our listeners are male executives and you're essentially <laughs> insulting them. And I said, don't worry, most of them won't realize that it's about them because that requires self-awareness. Same with the Argentines. You know, they laugh at my jokes because they're like, yeah, other people in my country are deluded, but not right. me. It's sort of like the better than average bias. Yeah, that saves you. That bias saves you. Uh, book sales. So I just want to talk about this third point a second about narcissism and how you're kind of linking this to males, because we found, you know, I think that one potential criticism of your work is like, you're letting women off the hook too easily. Like mm -hmm. women on average, we found in our research score higher than men on vulnerable narcissism, a different kind of narcissism, which is more associated with self preoccupation and anxiety and self insecurity. And there's still an entitlement level there, which is what makes it part of the narcissism complex. So couldn't one make the argument that like there's just that neither men or women are, are better or worse, but they kind of it comes out their narcissism comes out in different ways? Yeah, I think that is a valid point. And, you know, I think so I, I use kind of more broader terms and, and kind of um, maybe more exaggerated terms to distinguish between sort of neurotic narcissism and psychotic narcissism, right? So the first one is more insecure. Right. I don't know if you watch the British version of The Office. I haven't seen the American one, but in the British one, it's very clear that the main character played by Ricky Gervais is an insecure narcissist. Yeah. He's a narcissist, very much the female type, which, That's you know, right. he thinks he's great, but constantly requires validation. Constantly, yes. And it's very tiring. And but actually, not just for being an effective leader, but in general, you can generally coach that profile or that type of narcissism easier than the psychotic or deluded, you know, the kind of megalomaniac narcissist. Mm. So I think even there, there is, you know, small advantage to being a woman, even though, of course, we're still talking about small effect sizes. Averages. And, yeah. yeah, averages, right? But I think if you look at the whole picture and you look at, yes, on average, where women differ from men is because women tend to be less overconfident, even to the point of being more insecure, more kind and caring, more altruistic, etc. And men are the opposite. Historically, that has been seen as a male advantage. But I think these are cyclical things. If we spend three or four decades selecting for an over-masculine profile of, 
of a leader, there's going to be a need for the opposite. So I'm not arguing that forever, you know, we need to have a more feminine leadership side. But I think that many of the problems that we've experienced with our leadership in the last two or three decades are because of this overemphasis or overindexing of people who are overly abrasive, overconfident, reckless, mm. you know, and hypermasculine. So a balance would be nice. Organizations that have managed to have a more mixed or cognitive diverse configuration of the leader profile tended to do better as well. I really like that point. I'm trying to get all my potential criticisms out there because that's uh, that's what I do on the psychology podcast. So right. let me think of another one. Oh, so you know, some people may feel like may really object to you equating hypermasculinity as like a bad thing. You know, like you know, there's this big controversy over this Gillette ad that kind of painted mm-hmm. some normal masculine traits as necessarily toxic. But couldn't one make the case that's not fair to you're not being fair to men, you know, like, you know, there's a lot of masculine qualities like just healthy assertiveness and and perseverance and things that are just and you know, caretaking, you know, like to manage mm-hmm. as many people as possible that, that could be actually very beneficial things. Mm, Yeah, I think you're right, you know, and just because I focus on some of the negative effects doesn't mean that I'm not aware of the positive effects. Clearly, also, at least the way I see it is, I see this as an issue of, you know, a continuum, there is a range of or in femininity and a range of or in masculinity. As you know, many biological males are more feminine than some biological females and so forth. So if anything, My argument is that for too long, we've assumed that masculine characteristics of leadership or the masculine type is better than it actually is and focus so much on that or selecting for that, that we ended up in many cases with leaders who overindulged and they displayed, you know, antisocial behaviors, bullying, harassment, and other tendencies that are so common that, you know, it's almost the elephant in the room. I mean, now they transcended because there are so many famous cases. That is not to say that you have maybe healthy features or traits that, you know, we've associated with masculinity and that are an effect of masculinity, such as being competitive, you know, being, as you said, confident to a healthy degree. So if anything, you know, there is the bright and the dark side of both, of femininity Mm. and masculinity. My point is that we haven't emphasized enough the bright side of being a feminine leader. And actually, we haven't been aware enough of the dark side of, um, you know, masculinity. Yeah, that point, that point's very well taken. Okay, so what should we do to improve the quality of our leaders? And increase women leadership because that's important too, right? I mean, you don't want to just make the argument, we just need to make more men be like women. (laughs) We also need more women, right? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And so, you know, this is a great question. So again, I have three recommendations, which, you know, are part of the and how to fix it part of the book. Uh, The first is to follow the science and look for the qualities that actually make people better leaders especially when they don't usually make people leaders. So things like self-awareness, curiosity, people skills, emotional intelligence, even technical expertise, humility, coachability. Sometimes there is a theoretical understanding that these are desirable competencies and leadership traits, 
but there's still not much evidence that we actually select leaders on these trades. So mm. basically focus on the right trades. That's the, that's the first recommendation. The second one is to distrust our instincts. Mm. Even in today's age where there's so much discussion on being evidence-based, data-driven, big data, now AI, etc., and you know, much of HR has been rebranded as people analytics, the dominant currency for making even these high-stake decisions, so selecting people to the highest ranks of power and leadership, is intuition. Hey, I like this person who I just interviewed. Oh, they'll fit right in. You know, the same companies that are spending and largely wasting money on unconscious bias training yeah. would be that they hire on culture fit, you know, and that just replicates biases that are often hard to find because companies don't have tradition or a habit of actually measuring the performance of the leaders. So I like you during the interview and then I'm in charge of your performance evaluation and I say you are great. And then, hey, I was such a good, you know, assessor or evaluator of leadership potential. So second one is distrust our instincts. I mean, that's like a really, really big hurdle for making progress in HR in general. Okay, let's pause because I, yeah. I feel like you're about to move on to number three. Let's take a pause. Am I right? You're about to move on to number three. Yes, I was. Okay, cool. I could tell. So, okay, so let's pause for a second because this is, you're saying so many juicy things. So you just like, just quickly said like, yes, because we're wasting so much money on unconscious training. Well, that's not obvious. Let's unpack that more because there are still a lot of companies that believe in unconscious bias training. Can you explain a little more and unpack some of the science on why you think money would be better spent elsewhere? Mm. So I think, you know, first, of course, there is variability in the type of training that is offered, right? So on the point of how effective these intervention is, uh, interventions are, my main objection is that a lot of these interventions focus on making the unconscious conscious. Mm. And my argument here is that most biases are not even unconscious. They are actually conscious. And that a lot of the problematic biases are conscious. In fact, you can create more problems than you're solving by making people aware of the fact that, I don't know, they're biased against women, blacks, Hispanics, old people, or unattractive people. If I'm still relying on my intuition during mm -hmm. an interview, and all I'm thinking is, I should not think that the person in front of me is Hispanic, Latino, or female. I will only think about that, and I will have trouble focusing on everything else. And by the way, there's no evidence that even eliminating that bias will make me an objective assessor of mm. that person's potential compared to, I don't know, science-based assessments or some data-driven interventions. Having said that, you know, my main objection is not that the training might not work, but that the same companies are on the one hand spending money on those interventions, and then on the other hand saying we hire on culture fit. You know, they're almost incompatible because mm. If you are going to select people who are just like everybody else in your company, that's a very conscious bias that drives your talent identification efforts. I see. I see. So focus more on what conscious values and decision that trees that we're making, selection criteria, then, right. yeah, then uh, you seem to have less faith that we can so easily in like a two hour 
or a full day unconscious bias session convert the unconscious into consciousness? Yeah, that for sure, right? So certainly, you know, come here, I'll show you some slides on right. 1970s or 1980s research on, you know, IATs, etc., which, as you know, are still, uh, there's some interesting studies there, and it's still a lot of discussion as to whether, how effective they are, and also what happens once you find out what the IIT, IIT tells you, right? So I, I did the Harvard Implicit Associations Test of Sexism. And you're and, sexist? Well, Unconsciously? Yeah, in favor of women, you know, compared to men. So, which I sort of knew. So, in my case, well, that makes sense considering this book you've written. <laughs> yeah, you know, and and so, for example, what happens next, right? So, mm-hmm. that's the important thing. How do I address that bias once it is uh, conscious? Mm-hmm. But anyway, I think if you're doing that training, and then at the same time you're saying here we basically want people who are just like everyone else, you're mm-hmm. not going to create an inclusive culture that is accepting of people who look different. By the way, also, if companies are really thinking that they're going to address their diversity and inclusion issues by appointing minority person as chief diversity officer, and that's it, it's not very serious. Mm. Well, that's, I mean, a lot of companies are doing that these days. Exactly. And, you know, and I, and I think the intention might be fine, but much like the lean-in argument or like quotas, they often backfire because those who are in charge, you know, the elite, usually men, assume that these measures are breaking or kind of uh, reducing a meritocratic order that is in place in their view because, you know, nobody is challenging the fact that there is no meritocracy at the moment. Hmm. Really, really interesting point. Okay, so let's move on to your third one. Is that okay? Yeah, the, the third one, would kind of, which kind of addresses the second part of the question, which is, you know, not just how do we get better leaders in place, but also how do we get more women in leadership roles? And what I actually argue is that the solution is the same for achieving both things. So the third one is don't make it easier for competent women to become leaders make it harder for incompetent men to become leaders. They're occupying a lot of the jobs and roles mm. that could go to competent women or competent people in general. But at this stage, you know, the main issue is that incompetent men are overrepresented in leadership roles. So in a way, what I argue or the main implication for diversity, gender diversity policies or interventions is that the best gender diversity intervention is to focus on talent rather than gender Mm. if you really do assess talent and potential well and select leaders on the basis of their talent and potential you would not just end up with more women in leadership you would probably end up with slightly more women than men in leadership roles which would actually lead to us having to think about positive discrimination policies to help men get to leadership roles. So if anything, mm. it will be a reverse instance from what you have right now. And that argument sometimes upsets even feminists who think, oh, what you're saying is that, you know, it's all about the business case and ROI, and it's not important to promote social justice or fairness. Not at all. You know, I adhere to the social justice and social fairness cause. But I'm also saying that most corporations are not in it to improve 
social justice and social fairness and their role in the world is not to reduce inequalities. So if you're planning to persuade them using that argument, it's not going to work and it might backfire because they think, oh, we're doing it because it's an altruistic reason. That means there can't be a business case and it's not meritocratic. My argument is, look, here is the business case. And that would also, by the way, take care of the social justice issue. But we are simply doing this to actually make you more effective. Mm. Okay, so you're not necessarily a fan of quotas then or a quality of outcome, like forcing that we have to have 50, uh, hiring 50% women, 50% men. You're more in line with the, uh, like things will work itself out in a fair and equitable manner if we focus on talent and reduce our biases. Is Is that more along the lines of what you're saying? Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, use the right words because I'm not a fan of quotas, but at the same time, you know, I'm not against them. So if there's no other way and we can't persuade organizations to be more meritocratic, then fine, let's use quotas. But I believe there is a better way, which is to select on talent. And if you do selection in a gender blind way and focus on talent, the issue takes care of itself. So let's talk about talent for a second, because unfortunately, I wasn't able to get you on the psychology podcast to discuss your prior book, The Talent Delusion. So let's try to integrate that a little bit into this discussion. Mm-hmm. So I see a connection there between that book and, and your current book. And this, you know, the major argument of your prior book was that we need to really rely more on objective data and not on our intuition, which can lead us awry. And, and you've made a similar argument today about how um, we need to override our intuitions in a lot of cases or distrust our instincts, as you put it. So it does seem like this book is a bit of a continuation of your prior one. Would you say that's correct? Yeah, that's correct. And in fact, you could even see there is a trilogy because before the time... <laughs> a trilogy. Yeah, I mean, obviously not as famous as Star Wars or other, which is probably not even a trilogy, but you know, yeah, yeah. it's not Back to the Future, but there's still three. And that, you know, the first one is a book on how confidence in general is overrated. We overrate it in ourselves and in others. Uh, That was a generic book. Then the talent illusion is we are not very good at evaluating talent in the context of jobs, works, and most organizations played by ear, and uh, people don't get helpful feedback to understand what they're good at, what they are, where they can be more valuable, etc., And this one is combining both things, but taking the discussion to the realm of leadership and adding, you know, injecting the gender variable. So, you know, you're absolutely right. And in the talent delusion, I think the main point was that to some degree, you know, everybody, if they are put in a place where their attitudes, personality, interests and abilities are in the right place, they're going to be a high performer, okay? But at present, that doesn't happen very often because we basically use the wrong criteria and the wrong tools to actually work out what people are good at. That was the talent division. Yeah, I can see the, the connections between all three. But moving, zooming out even further from all three, what would you say is like a key thread of all your, like your entire life's work? Individual differences, leaders in the workplace? I don't know. What would you see? Mm, that's an interesting question. You know, what, I mean, what would you think is the main one? This is, a, this is a tricky one. Well, I just said at the most broadest level, I see you being yeah. very interested in individual differences, personality. Yeah. And the workplace. But it could also be now like you've extended this to group differences as well. But 
yeah. differences. You know? But I think you're right, you know, because even when I talk about group differences, it's, you know, just the aggregate level of analysis. It's a consequence of individual differences that are, you know, also that's right a cluster around there. So, um, you know, ultimately, like, even though I'm very focused on what happens in the workplace and business environments and people's kind of careers, you're right. I think my main interest is ultimately using science and applying that science to understanding or decoding the most individual level of analysis of what people are like, right? And so, mm -hmm. yeah, it's in, in the tradition of individual differences or differential psychology, it's trying to understand what people's typical or default tendencies are, which doesn't mean that they're not going to change sometime, you know, from one situation to another. It doesn't mean that, right. Yeah. yeah. So I'm wondering what has been the reaction to your book? I mean, I hope it just hasn't been purely stereotypical in the sense that the women applaud you and love you and want to be like, oh, Thomas, I want to hug you, you know, and all the men like hate your guts, you know, like for like selling us out. Like, I hope it hasn't simply been that stereotypical. Please tell me that it's not just been the reaction. Yeah, you, you know, I think you're right. It hasn't simply been that and it's not the only reaction. But let's say that maybe... 30% of it is that, which... Yeah, maybe there is some is, of that, right? Yeah, yeah, there is some of that for sure. I think the title is somewhat of a double-edged sword, you know, or mixed blessing. It definitely gets people to pay attention to it, but it also stops people in some instances from actually reading the book and they have views on it. You know, the reaction suggests that they, actually, they haven't actually read the book, yeah, but they have opinions about the title that can be you know, the title can be polarizing in a way. So so I'm going to talk about the remaining third, the one okay. that I consider the uh, most promising, most rational, and at least more rewarding reaction, which is always when people reframe certain misconceptions and maybe they thought, ah, okay, you know, so what you're arguing is that we are, for example, focusing less on the qualities that make people more effective as leaders and the things that actually we all assume. Because if you ask even educated and liberal and, you know, uh, professional, experienced people, what is the number one competency or ingredient of leadership potential, they will, the most common answer will be confidence, mm. you know? Yeah. So just helping them reframe that is important. And then I think, the one that I have, you know, been probably happiest about is people who work in the diversity and inclusion space and are maybe from whatever reason, role, job, or part of their occupations, trying to promote gender equality. They've often said, oh, you know, this is a different argument. And I can see now how some of the things that we've taken for granted might not just not help, but actually backfire, you know? So I think the timeliness, if anything, is that we have entered, I think, a phase in the discussions of diversity, gender diversity and equality, where the conversation is a little bit more mature, more rational, more evidence-based, and where organizations are moving from pretending that they care to actually caring. Yeah. And again, you know, I see a lot of people really agreeing with that. And then I see some people saying, you know, there's just so much piling on men these days, you know, like it can lead one to kind of think, well, is there anything good about men, you know? Yeah, I think it's certainly, you know, there has never been a worse 
time in history to be a man you could <laughs> now but at the same time it is still much better to be born as a man than as a woman anywhere in the world you know including scandinavia by the way so i'm not saying the solution to the past historical injustices uh, would be to reverse it and make the world you know overly challenging towards men and too easy for women but even if that happened you could argue that it's not the most immoral scenario, given how hard it has been for the past few hundred years, at least, for women, and how easy it has been and fairly easy for men. So I'm not advocating for that, but if that happened, then I can't necessarily sympathize and say, oh, poor man, you know? Yeah, I, I do hear you saying it. But, you know, I think the important thing is just keep up the uh, open conversation and uh, mutual understanding across both sexes and both genders. And yeah, I think you've really uh, contributed an important addition to this ongoing, it's a cultural war, but it's also a a reckoning, a male reckoning. You know, men are starting to be accountable for a lot of their bad behavior. And, you know, like it's undeniable there's a lot of bad behavior among men. Uh, there's bad behavior among women too, right? Correct. And I, and I think, you know, the interesting kind of more geeky and theoretical or even philosophical theme that underpins this or some of these issues, which I know you've researched and written about a lot, is that kind of intersection or tension between cultural evolution and biological evolution, you know, how they the degree to win watch one emerges because of the other and yeah. to what degree they are in tension and one tries to undermine the other so i think that's that's very interesting certainly that the fact that yeah you know there's a thing that always has been and will continue to be but then at the same time you have huge cultural differences today between different places that show that culture can do a lot to erode suppress or counteract some of these biological factors it can. And that seems to be the focus of your book, right? Is what can we do as a culture to have a more equitable workplace that also just has more actually competent people running the ship? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And I think ultimately men have always, and by men, I mean mankind, right? So men and women. Have humankind. Always, <laughs> humankind, yes. Found ways to transcend their own biology and nature. Yes. Right? I am... Um, creating tools and uh, machines and technology that actually advance the species as well. And that's, you know, at the core of much of the conversation around technology and AI today as well, even if we don't become androids anytime soon. Hopefully not. <laughs> well, I don't know. <laughs> Maybe it would say it would actually help us in a lot of ways, but we don't need to get into that discussion. You don't need to go there, and at least you should reassure your audience that you are a human and I am a human, and also remind <laughs> them that neither of us uh, is an incompetent man. That's important to state. <laughs> oh, that's very kind of you to think I'm a competent man. Well, I try my best, and I uh, I try to be better every day. You know, and I think that's the best we can do, right? For sure, trying is half of the battle. <laughs> okay. What's the other half of the battle? Well, it's succeeding at it, right? But I think a lot of the issues, and, and this is a serious uh, topic that fascinates me, if, if you look at you know another literature, which is the coaching and leadership development literature, mm. which shows very clearly some interventions are more effective than others. Yeah, that's always going to be the case. And the main 
determinant or driver of whether an intervention is effective is not the coach, is not the methodology, it's the coachee, right? The old joke in psychology, which is how many psychologists it takes to change a light bulb, <laughs> one so long as the light bulb really wants to change. <laughs> you know, and can people change? Yes, but mostly they don't because they don't try, you know, or they don't get the right feedback or they're happy where they are. So I always say the paradox in the world of coaching is that it works with those who need it the least because they're the people who were already curious, self-critical yeah. and eager to change. And uh, conversely, those who have none of these attributes uh, are... <laughs> A, uncoachable, and B, those who need it the most. And they're the ones at the top. Uh, yes, and we won't give specific examples, but yeah, yeah. it can be the very, very top. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, or, you know, I mean, I think it's fair to say that this is uh, quite a common feature in many, many, if not most, heads of states, right? This uh, yeah. is the fact. You know, 70% of the world is run by people who have no shortage of confidence and charisma, but are not very humble, not very curious, not very coachable. And uh, maybe things are better than they were, but I would argue that they could also be much better. And the countries that are run well and where people are happiest and thriving and improving themselves uh, tend to be run by more competent and humble people. I really like that. So I want to ask you a final question here, unless there's anything else you want to talk about. But, you know, there's an age-old question, and I'm going to ask it to you. Do nice guys finish last? <laughs> ah, this is, you know, sometimes I think is the correct answer. But doesn't have to be the case? It's a really, yeah. I, I, my book would focus on the fact that they do, right? Because even though I make the case for more women, in leadership. I also make the case for nicer guys in leadership. I think we need more nice guys to be in leadership roles. And right now, when you often show that you are a nice guy, you are, you know, overlooked or ignored for leadership roles. Yeah, nice men are discriminated against as well. Exactly. Absolutely. And so I make that point in the book. So for the purposes of our conversation, I will say yes. But it doesn't have to be the case. Oh, no, it should be the other way around, especially because as a leader, you're responsible for the well-being, the performance, the success, and the fate of your team, your followers, your subordinates. So they're going to benefit much more if you are a nice guy than if you're a nasty uh, dot, dot, dot. Yeah. So I wish more people, I wish a lot of people listen to this podcast episode who are in leadership positions or can choose leaders and uh, hope they choose more wisely based on your work. Absolutely. And I think, you know, the men who have expressed uh, positive comments and feedback on the book, and they are also more likely to mentor and support the female case. Yeah often say, look, I mean, I am myself disadvantaged or handicapped at work because I display some of these feminine characteristics. So absolutely. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for chatting with Tate Moss, and I wish you all the best with this important research program. Thank you so much, Scott. Thanks for listening to the Psychology Podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you'd like to react in some way to something you heard, I encourage you to join in the discussion at thepsychologypodcast.com. That's thepsychologypodcast.com. Also, please add a rating and review of the Psychology Podcast on iTunes. 
Thanks for being such a great supporter of the podcast and tune in next time for more on the mind, brain, behavior, and creativity. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. It's a simple truth. No matter who you are, mental health challenges can affect you, and how you manage them can make all the difference. That's why everyone should have access to mental health support that meets them where they are and helps them get through. BetterHelp provides online therapy on your schedule. It's flexible, simple to use, and more affordable than in-person therapy. Connect with a licensed therapist selected just for you. Learn more at BetterHelp.com. That's better H-E-L-P dot com. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Pluma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds from Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. You know that feeling when you walk into your home, take a deep breath, and feel new? Well, that's what it's like to use Clorox Sentiva. Because Clorox Sentiva smells like coconut, cleans like Clorox, and feels like energy. It'll elevate any cleaning routine to not just clean, but also make every room smell like a tropical coconut getaway. Discover how Clorox Sentiva's powerful clean and refreshing scents can transform your space. Get yours in coconut or other fabulous scents at a nearby retail store.